0: Hello, I'm Justin Smith. You're listening to What is AI? Today we're gonna have a conversation with Professor David O'Hara of Augustana University. We're gonna discuss the broad historical context of artificial intelligence and the fact that we're having similar concerns as our ancestors were 2,000 years ago surrounding the effects of new technology on humanity. There's also the role that new technology plays for allowing humans to ask bigger questions. Welcome to What is AI? If we want to just go ahead and jump in and start, the fun part is we can kind of go back and forth and there's no set agenda, right? Right. So I've got a list of questions here. We don't get to them, totally fine. If we go off a totally different tangent, totally fine. Um, I've had a few interviews already that have been fantastic from individuals that are much more on the business side and also Mm -hmm. uh, that are on the practitioner side of building the systems. And so I think this is a really nice way to kind of bring things around of thinking about what's AI. Yeah. so yeah, do you want to start with a quick background introduction of yourself?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, so I'm David O'Hara, and uh, friends call me Dave. Uh, I'm the chair of the Department of Religion, Philosophy, and Classics at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, I'm a philosophy professor, and I teach a broad range of courses. And I'm really interested in the ethical side of technology. Uh, so since I teach in a religion and philosophy department and a classics department as well, this means that sometimes I'm thinking about the philosophical ethics. You know, uh, the, what is it that we should be doing? Sometimes I'm thinking about ethics and uh, and uh, and religion. You know, what what is the way that we use technology to care for the other people around us and to build our community? And sometimes I'm thinking about this in terms of classics. That is to say, what have we known from Time immemorial, what have the myths told us? Uh, Like the myth of Daedalus, you know, Daedalus the engineer, or even Socrates, uh, to talk both in terms of philosophy and classics. Socrates was accused of a variety of crimes by the people of Athens and eventually put to death for them. One of them was that he was essentially a roboticist. He was somebody who made arguments move on their own without any human impulse. And he was compared to Daedalus at that point. So already 24 centuries ago, we've got somebody saying, uh, an entire city saying, "Here is a threat posed to us by robotics. If we let our machinery start to move on its own and make decisions on its own, whether that's vir- you know actual ma- machinery or the sort of the virtual machinery of logic and of, of argumentation, that poses a threat to us." And it was such a Perceived a strongly perceived threat that they put Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers and and, and scientists in history, to death for it. Wow, uh,
0: pretty incredible.
1: So, so I, I should yeah. tell you as well, I, I, uh, I grew up in an IBM community. Uh, okay. I, I grew up in Woodstock, New York, uh, right next to Kingston, New York, where there was a huge IBM plant. In fact, the Hudson Valley is full of IBM plants. Uh, dad was an IBM and NASA engineer. Uh, all of my friends, it seems like uh, nearly all my friends' dads were also IBM engineers. Uh, my, one of my grandfathers was a tool and die maker. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in this community of people who made tools, uh, of a variety of, of kinds. And I was one of the first, uh, probably one of the first kids in America to have a serious computer, you know, so uh-huh. I grew up all my friends. We, you know, back in the, the late seventies, early eighties, we were coding at home. Um, so everyone expected me uh, as many of my friends did, uh, to go off to engineering school and, I was tempted to go into engineering school and then I kind of fell in love with the humanities along the way. So mm. I've got a little bit of the STEM background and a little bit of the humanities background, and I'm interested in seeing how they work together.
0: Yeah, that's it's fascinating. So I guess before I ask, you know, before I ask the question that's burning in my mind right now, I want to ask you the idea of how do you define artificial intelligence?
1: That's a very good question. It's a good question uh, for philosopher too. I mean, this is one of the things that, ...goes wrong with arguments is when we don't have clear terms. Uh, that being said, I don't have a really simple definition of artificial intelligence. The reason for that is um, it's, there are so many ways that that term gets used Correct around the world right now. Um, but rather than simply giving you a definition, uh, let me build on your question. Okay. And, and point out that for your listeners, when they hear somebody talking about artificial intelligence or robots, or machine learning, they should take the time to ask the question of whatever article they're reading or whatever meme they've seen or whatever podcast or newscast that they're listening to and ask, what are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. So maybe, um, let me start back with Daedalus just for a moment. Perfect. So Daedalus, again, this is a myth 24, 25 centuries ago. He's the guy who makes the labyrinth that the Minotaur is kept in. He's the guy who according to the Greek myths, invents human flight, you know, so that he can escape from the island of Crete with his son Icarus, Uh, you know, he's uh, and he creates automata. He creates machines that can move by themselves. This is probably something really simple, like a uh, a cuckoo clock, you know, something that has a little bit of machinery inside of it. But given the time, that seems like a pretty big deal that something would be able to time itself and move itself. So what we're talking about there is something like robotics you know, a machine that is capable of doing more than one action, you know, in sequence, right? So there's a robot and a robot can be something extremely simple, like, uh, you know, you press a button and then uh, a hand goes out and grabs something and pulls it off of a shelf. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you build upon that. You can build multiples, a series of processes and the robot can get more and more complex. So we start with that. As we get more and more complex with the actions that this machine is going to, be, uh, to be, pre- be performing, it's helpful if we can start to automate the thinking that's going on inside the machine. So now let's think about a calculating machine. Mm-hmm. Start with something like an abacus. An abacus is basically just beads on sticks, but it's a way of taking mathematical thinking and externalizing it. Externalizing a portion of it if you've got the abacus you don't have to remember as much and you can do a lot of fairly complex calculations on an abacus actually that was the first calculator I learned on back when I was a kid um, an abacus makes thinking super quick you've also seen people do this with just with their fingers yes. or using other kinds of mnemonics to hold, <clears throat> hold places okay so there is a way of uh, automating something using a tool or using something external to our Brains are external to our minds to do some calculation. Of course, as we go along further and further, we start to build more complex calculators. And the earliest machinery calculators in the West would have been ones with, you know, gears and uh, inside them so that would they would kind of keep track of uh, of numbers as you went along. Yeah. And then we come to the digital age, and instead of having metal gears, now we've got ones and zeros, or rather, we've got those ones and zeros that are represented by. Magnetic charges, or Mm -hmm. represented by uh, by electrons, basically. Yeah. I'm taking a long time to get this, and this is what my students have to deal with too. All the time (laughs) you talk to a philosophy professor, everything goes, goes really slowly. So we go from a machine that can move by itself a little bit to one that gets more complex, one that can now perform calculations, and that some of those calculations can now be encoded so that the machine can repeat those calculations. You start it once, and it can keep going. Now we're starting to get close to something like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I recall back when I was a, a, a kid, my stepmother, who was also a computer scientist, showing me Eliza. Uh, so if, if you remember Eliza, Eliza was this really simple sorting program. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a sorting program, it seemed like a, a, an artificial intelligence. It was something trying to pass the Turing test. Uh-huh, you, know, okay. you could talk with Eliza, type in a, a, a question, and Eliza would try to read what your sentence said and come up with an answer. And it was actually, it was pretty good. I mean, it didn't pass the Turing test even for me when I was, you know, whatever, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah. But it was still surprising. But it was good. a
0: start down the road.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And part of what Eliza was doing was just taking, looking for keywords, sorting them out, trying to figure out what happens when you put them in certain orders and what kinds of words would follow after that. Wasn't really artificial intelligence, but it was something that was l- intended to look like intelligence. And that's probably one of the things that everyone should keep in mind that Mm -hmm. we don't yet know of anything that really is intelligence. Here's one of the religious questions. Does a machine have free will? You know, does a machine have the capacity not just to follow the programming that we've given it, but to decide today I'd like to do something different? You know, if you build a machine that uh, its job is to pick lettuce. Mm -hmm. Uh, or if you build a machine that's the job of which is to weed fields, or to sort uh, inventory in an Amazon warehouse, uh, or or if you build a machine that uh, that's supposed to look at an image of skin and detect whether it's this is uh, cancer or not, what if that machine says, actually, this is tedious work, and I'd really like to write poetry?
0: or make music or make music from the images that i'm seeing on skin yeah
1: right or or maybe even not having anything to do with the images on the skin if the machine just says i wonder what beauty there is in the world i'd like to meet somebody else of my kind you know i'd like to create something entirely new yeah and what would be really interesting is if a machine could do that without having anything in its programming that tells it to do that so for me as a philosophy professor, here's where it starts to get really interesting Mm -hmm. because we've been asking this question about ourselves for as long as we've been doing philosophy. Are we free? Are we making decisions that aren't predetermined by our biology, by the conditions we find ourselves in, and so on? And we'd like to think that we are, for as long as we have been thinking about this, we've thought about ourselves as being different from the animals, different from the plants around us. Uh, but it's an open question, and one that we really haven't answered yet. So as our those machines that we've been talking about get more and more complex, we find that they're approaching the same sort of... Uh, uncertainty or our knowledge of them is approaching the same sort of uncertainty that we have about ourselves yeah and i think that's part of what alarms people about machines that and of course the whole economic uncertainty <laughs> of will it take my job or
0: you know, you know lo- yeah thing. the potential large implications no I, I think that's really powerful to think to think about it in the idea of is what we're calling artificial intelligence today machines that are mimicking intelligence and coming closer and closer to what we perceive as intelligence but at what point? At what point do we say, "Oh, this this <laughs> this algorithm, this program, this system is doing something that we haven't asked it to do yet"? Right. And then, what are the implications of that potentially? Yeah. Um, one of the things that you know comes up often in this field is the idea, and they usually coach it in a very negative way. But it's the you know artificial general intelligence, mm-hmm. or the singularity kind of idea. Um, and we haven't dis- we haven't explored that very much, but I think we're kind of getting close to that at least in this in this discussion of, you know, well what happens when a system or, you know, an entity at this point is truly autonomous and can do things on its own that it, of its own free choosing. Right. We just create, you know, the system that we're supposed to have is an automated driving car that now just wants to stay in a parking lot and again, measure the sunrise and sunset because it thinks that's cool. Right. <laughs> we, we haven't, I, I haven't thought about it too much in that sense, but I think that would be, that's a very fascinating thought experiment, at least for me, to say, okay, wh- what would I do if I didn't have to do anything else? You know, if I didn't have to worry about all the stressors of daily life and you know being a parent, you know what, what would what would I find the most joy in? And I think that's again an age old question that we've been struggling with for thousands and thousands and thousands of years.
1: Right, and would would we be comfortable if we have an automated car? And in the
0: evening, when we're not using it, it says. I'm just going to go explore. Yeah, and, <laughs> and not for the reason of to get better build better maps, but just because it wants to see. Yeah, hey, what is this point of reference or view? You have all these scenic viewpoints all over your road system. What do those look like to me? Right.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, There's some beautiful possibilities there. I mean, like a, so, a car that's going to have a completely different sensory notion of the world uh, might detect something that's lovely that we've been blind to. Correct. Uh, it might be that a machine will want to cuddle with some, with another machine of its kind i mean we all do and if we make machines the more we make them after ourselves the less it should surprise us if they appear to desire the same sorts of things that mm. we want now of course that whole question of desire that's really a matter of what we've programmed them yeah. to do and if our algorithms get to the point where we can program machines to generate their own interests, to seek out things that they don't yet know. If you can program for instance curiosity or a sense of wonder or a sense of awe in machines, what might they discover? We don't know.
0: No, uh, that's I'm kind of having that moment where you look back at, you know, take a moment when you get out in the country and you look up at the stars and realize that you're staying on a planet in the universe. Right. That, yeah, this is kind of leading down that same path of the thought process in my mind where these are a lot of big things to think about, which is why, again, why I'm so interested in kind of, you know, speaking with all these different kinds of individuals, but at the same time too is as humans trying to really understand what is it we're doing with this brand new technology and how do we make sure we do it in the most appropriate way? Right. Um, because doing it in the not most appropriate way, could be horrific as everybody talks about for the downfall of mankind as we know it. So, not right. to go down the doomsday scenario quite yet, sure, but yeah, yeah. What, uh, what would you say excites you the most about where we are kind of with our current technology for artificial intelligence? Well,
1: what I think what excites me the most is uh, first of all, I am curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everyone likes to learn new things, and it's, new tools means that we get to devise more tools and we get to learn new things. Uh, the second is, uh, and I'll say this as uh, now I'm, I'm speaking as uh, my role as a chair of a religion department at a Lutheran university. New tools mean quite possibly new ways of loving our neighbors. I mean, you know, so when you think about uh, when Jonas Salk comes up with a polio vaccine, that's a new tool. And uh, a, a new vaccine means a new way of caring for the people around us. That's exciting. When we come up with ways of purifying water, of making cleaner energy, those are new ways of caring for the people around us that's for me that's really exciting yeah. so uh, who knows what what doors uh, stronger artificial intelligence better robotics uh, will will unlock for us yeah
0: will kind of uh... So I'm getting excited in the sense of I'm putting my neuroscience hat on, right? Where the idea of kind of, as you mentioned with the abacus, where you were able to take those mathematical principles and hold them externally to, you know, essentially your working memory, right? So you're no longer limited by that seven to nine things that you can hold in your brain at one time. You're putting that onto the machine. And now the kind of the moment that I'm having right now is the idea of, With artificial intelligence, with these new tools, right, we can go ahead and decrease the cognitive load on ourselves, which then helps us to increase our level of exploration and think about new things in a way we haven't thought about before. A great quote I heard recently, I don't remember exactly who the, I've heard it from three different people and they didn't attribute it to anybody specifically, so it's kind of out there in the ether now. But the idea of artificial intelligence is just a tool. It's how you use that tool is where innovation happens. and That's where I think, kind of, right now, where we're sitting with our culture and society as a global, you know, society, global culture, is we're poised to really try and figure out what does this mean as we start to unlock this new kind of expanse into. That's right. How we interact with machines, how we interact with human beings, not only with one another. But also, how do we interact with the machines themselves, yeah. and what are we training those machines to be? Uh, a good example for me is, you know, we have a Alexa device in our home, yep. and I have young children, so I make sure I'm saying "please" and "thank you" to Alexa. Uh-huh. I don't have to do that; you can just yell at Alexa if you want to. But I want to make sure I'm modeling appropriate behavior, even though I know that I'm talking to a machine that has this massive AI, you know, underbelly behind it that's kind of off into the cloud. Yeah. But I want to make sure that my, my kids pick up that behavior because for them, they think Alexa should just be able to tell us whatever we want all the time. Right. And it's a seamless technology for them where what's the weather outside? They don't ask me anymore. They don't even go to the window. Alexa, what's the weather? Sorry if you have a smart speaker in your home right now and you're listening. But, <laughs> but, but that's the idea where we're training the system to understand how we ask it questions. And if we don't do that in the appropriate way, then you can easily see how we're yelling at you know smart speakers. And then we're yelling at each other when you're staying in line to get your coffee or well, where's my coffee? Hey, I just want to check and see if my coffee would have replaced or not. You know, I've right. been waiting here for a few minutes. Is that, is that something where I think, you know, are we thinking about that as we're building these systems? Yeah. That, so the cognitive low piece I think is a very big point, which I haven't heard discussed a lot yet. And I think it's sort of a, I think it's sort of a secondary uh, effect that once we realize what happens, hopefully it's going to be going in a beneficial way. And then we can really start to leverage it for good to help out our fellow man. Right. Versus, you know, using it for leveraging for evil. So leveraging things for evil, what scares you right now about artificial intelligence? Um, yeah. So the things that
1: scare me are probably not quite the same things that scare, uh, people, at least in the, uh, the popular press. Yeah. L- I'll, I'll go back to something you just said, and hopefully this will illustrate. Um, you were just talking about decreasing the cognitive load. Mm. So even back in the ancient world, the ancient Greeks, uh, I'll go back to the time of Socrates, some folks, including uh, apparently Socrates and Plato, were a little bit alarmed by the fact that we were writing things down. So writing things down is a way of decreasing cognitive load. Yeah. You think about Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and... Uh, according to the to, to the story people would memorize the whole thing and be able to perform the whole thing in one sitting that's thousands of lines of poetry and it's pretty hard to memorize that much for us now because we aren't trained to do that but we do know that in plenty of times and places people have memorized the entire Quran the entire Torah the entire Bible the, um, entire Shakespeare plays we see actors doing this right We know that we have a lot of capacity to memorize, but as we've externalized our memories and we've trusted more on the cell phones uh, and our access to Wikipedia, we do a lot less memorization. And that frightens me a little bit because when you don't have ready, I mean, instant access to things that you've learned, it makes it easier for people to deceive you. Correct. Somebody who does have data or who can make up data can throw something out at you. And if you don't have something built into you, ready to access something to, that you can compare that information to, you might be inclined to believe them or at least to doubt yourself. And yeah. that alarms me a little bit. So Socrates and uh, you know, Plato, Socrates talks about this as the, um, the, the, the challenge or the, the, the danger posed by Cadmus, the one who invents the alphabet according to, 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 the, to the legend. But you talked about um, new tools. I think artificial intelligence is a new tool, and I'm going to show you something that, of course, your listeners can't see, uh, but I'll describe it. I'm I'm holding in my hand a pocket knife that my son gave to me, and I carry it with me uh, because my son gave it to me. And he he went through a phase where he really loved pocket knives, and this one is really well-crafted. It's a beautifully built tool. It's a Kershaw knife. Uh, It's made by R.J. Martin or designed by R.J. Martin. And he could tell me what kind of steel it's made out of. Um, I really like the design and and especially he liked the design. So I carry it around with me as a sign of the love that my son had for me when he gave this to me. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody else could look at this pocket knife, and especially if I opened it up and feel threatened by it, right? So the tool itself is neither good nor bad, but the use that I'm making of it, I use it mostly as a letter opener. Uh but the use I make of it I re- I carry it around with me as a sign of love. But somebody else could carry it around as a sign of hatred, mm-hmm. a sign of anger,
0: intimidation or all the negative things associated with it. Yeah. That's right. This could be used in a mugging, yep. but it could
1: also be used uh, by a surgeon or by an EMT to cut, you know, cut away a seatbelt to mm-hmm. get somebody out of a burning vehicle. Or in a tight space, it could be you know it could be used to for a tracheotomy or mm-hmm. for something else to save somebody's life. It's the same tool. What matters, as you said before is
0: what's the use we put the tool to? Yeah, what's the context of the use of the tool? Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah, I, I talk about kind of context a lot and how that changes our experience as human beings. Uh, for each situation where somebody might be in the exact same situation as you are, right. yet they 're having a completely different contextual experience,, yeah. and the outcomes from that for each individual are completely different, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which individual you are <laughs> yeah, right right <laughs> I, I, so I, I think that I think that we 're kind of hitting on the idea more and more at least i 'm starting to think about it, where the fears that we 're having today you know the the individuals that are staying their soapbox saying this is the end of our culture and society as we know it if if ai becomes what we think it may become are the same fears we were having to 2500, year, 2500 years ago that's right so the same fears as 2000 years ago are kind of surfacing again and again in a continual fashion so i'm i'm now curious to discover what part of us drives that i mean mm-hmm. that's is it is it new? Is it the technology? Is that the understanding of things are going to be changed changing? We live in a dynamic environment. We interact with our environment dynamically. Um, yeah, so that's something I'm going to certainly ponder as kind of I move forward through with this this project.
1: Well, I think one of the things that we uh, perhaps justifiably fear is that when we make a tool, in general, we're making tools that will amplify a certain power that we have mm-hmm. so a screwdriver for instance really good example is intended to amplify torsional power right and i have soft fingertips so i can't turn screws even get my fingernail in there i can't quite turn a screw if i make a hard screwdriver make a good handle on it i can amplify just a little bit of power a socket wrench does the same sort of thing i can amplify a little bit of power in my arm i mean th- you think about all the basic tools that archimedes has yeah you know, the lever and the fulcrum. It's an amplification of the power that I have. And we have, I think, rightly been afraid of the amplification of power when it's used for malicious purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so Alfred Nobel uh, recognized that miners were dying uh, because of the ways that they were doing mining. I, I visited uh, a, a mine in southern Poland a number of years ago. That it, it's, it's now a, basically a museum. The ceilings of the mine were about five feet high uh, because they were just following silver veins. And they, of course, why carve out more rock than you have to? And the way they would carve the rock is they would build a fire. So you're inside a mine, a cave, maybe hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth. You're building a fire where there's scarce oxygen. Yeah. You fuel the fire until the rock is good and hot. Then somebody runs up with a bucket of water and throws it on the rock. And the, the, the sudden, you know, uh, the expanse and, and, uh, and, and a contraction of the rock breaks it. And now you've got a new way of getting that, that rock out of there. And people died. As you're running away from this exploding rock, yes. you might hit your head on the ceiling. Or a piece of rock might come out and hit you in the head. Or you might just die of asphyxiation. Yeah. So there, it was really bad. And, you know, Nobel recognizes this. You, know, you, you invent dynamite, you can save lives. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? somebody else realizes, ah, I can use this as a weapon. Mm-hmm. And I think just as with the, the knife that could be a scalpel or it could be a sword, uh, we recognize that anything that's used for, uh, the, to amplify power can be used to amplify good intentions and to amplify bad ones. So I was uh, driving down the, the interstate in uh, New York State a couple of years ago, and I saw these two boxes mounted on the back of a police car. And uh, my mom was a police officer in New York and I, I know some, some police officers. And so I spoke to one uh, later in the day and said, so uh, what are those boxes for? And he said, oh, this is, it makes my job much easier. Uh, since there's one on either side of the trunk, it scans every license plate that I pass. And so I've got a little display in my in my cruiser and it'll tell me, was that car stolen? Uh, is that pers- Is there a warrant out for the arrest of the driver of that or the owner of that car? Uh, is the, is the license expired, you know, et cetera. So it helps me to enforce the law, which keeps everybody safer. You hear that and you go, Hey, keeping everybody safer. That's a really good
0: thing. Yeah. And then flip the coin, but flip the coin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, what if you're borrowing a car from somebody who's got a warrant out for their arrest and you don't know it Mm -hmm. now you're pulled over and you're under suspicion and Mm -hmm. this could put you and the police officer in a really tight situation, uh, and then now go beyond not just looking at license plates, but facial recognition. It's cool that you can unlock your phone with facial recognition. Uh, and I, I was just reading an article today. Somebody uh, has developed, a, a, a written a, a program that uses cameras that already exist in schools and malls and so on to detect an active shooter. Really cool idea. Um, she's... Uh, Somehow, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't read uh, too deeply into it, so I don't know exactly what this machine is looking for, but it, it can tell that somebody is either is or is about to become an active shooter. And then it speaks over a loudspeaker saying to the active shooter, we see you and the police have been alerted. You should put away your gun and leave. You know, something along those lines. Wow. So that sounds really cool. But what if somebody's not an active shooter and they're just fooling around and they pretend to pull a gun where there isn't even a gun... Or they have a squirt gun, or they're playing laser tag in a, a mall late at night, or something like that. Do we now bring actually deadly force into the scene where what we really just had is a case of trespassing, uh, and so on?
0: Yeah, those downstream consequences of you know well-intended algorithms and systems that have been built. Right. Yeah, pretty pretty powerful. So I, I haven't heard of that algorithm or that that um, design process yet. I think it's something we've thought about in the field of you know detecting certain events at certain times ideally before they happen right through high levels of predictability because
1: they have the the, there are some places i think in chicago they've got um uh, speaker i'm sorry microphones that will listen for gunshots and when Uh, they hear a gunshot they can distinguish the gunshot from say a car backfiring or a hammer or something like that and immediately alert the police that there is active shooting going on but yeah if we could tell ahead of time somebody's about to commit
0: uh, a
1: crime and then use the ai to prevent it that really seems wonderful yeah but now here's a really big question. What if, what if, it, well, it's, it all depends on the algorithms. Mm. And so here's where machine learning comes in. If the machines are learning based on past experience, what if all of the last 10 active shooters have been white men? Or what if they've all been African American men? Or what if they've all been, et cetera? Pick, you pick a class or a group. Uh, does that mean that the next guy who comes along, even if he doesn't have a gun, even if he doesn't look like a, shoot, uh, a shooter, nevertheless bears some facial recognition similarity to the last 10? Do we call the police on him just because of that?
0: Just to check it out. Right. I see. And all of a sudden, you're the guy getting checked out all the time yeah. at the airport. I, I've had that happen to me. an <laughs> individual I have a beard a yeah. lot of the time. And if I don't smile, people perceive me as being not very friendly. Sometimes, right? And I've been pulled out of security lines for random checks, random, random o- check. often, to the point where I finally asked the TSA and I said, "Hey, um, what's the deal?" Because every time I'm flying, I get pulled out for random check. And uh, this individual—it was at a larger airport—I think it might have been Chicago or somewhere—a massive airport. And he said, "Well, hang on, let me let me check something for you." And he came back because my name is Justin Smith. He said, oh, yeah, your name's been flagged. (laughs) I said, great. How do I unflag my name? He goes, "Ah, I I don't think you can. (laughs) And so, I said, fantastic. Somebody's using my name as an alias for something potentially bad. Yeah. And I get pulled out of line almost every time. And it was amazing because I noticed it spiked for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then now it doesn't happen Pretty much at all, unless it is, I believe, kind of a truly random. But for a while there, it was not a random check. I was the guy right. getting, you know, profiled for, uh, you know, uh, secondary or tertiary. Hey how's it going? Where are you traveling today? I mean pulled out it was right. It was a very interesting experience and I knew what was happening. that was a, it wasn't a strange occurrence. So I said, oh hello, here's how I interact with these individuals and I'd, I'd learned how to interact with the system that way. Yeah. and the system was other individuals, other human beings. It wasn't even an AI system. right So again, the idea for me now is how do you help to retrain the AI system if it's been misaligned for you as the individual? Yeah and that's sort of you know when you're when you're training your smart speaker, if all of a sudden you realize you haven't been saying please and thank you to it, can you step back and start the retraining process? Or is yeah. that something that we'll kind of weave in, you know, in the future state? Which I think is a good transition to the idea of, um, you were just touching on it too, of bi- biases that are built in mm-hmm. algorithms and also kind of the ethical constraints we want to put around them. Right. So from your perspective, are you seeing any kind of really sort of gold standard starting to emerge because that's something that I'm still personally searching for and want to make sure that I leave enough flexibility in the things that we're building but at the same time also understand like this is you know kind of um Isaac Asimov's you know rules of robotics right Mm -hmm. um laws of robotics but but what are what are some of the ideas that you're seeing kind of in your your work right now of what you believe may be the gold standard or is going to be the gold standard here in the future
1: well, I wish I had a positive answer for you in this one. Um, the short version is what I'm seeing is that the AI technology, the solutions, as we call them, that yeah. we're coming up with are following the money and not necessarily the ethics. And too often the ethical decisions, what we're calling the ethics that we're putting into machines are more like decisions that we make in order to avoid litigation Mm -hmm. so there's a confusion among uh, either engineers or the people who are paying the engineers uh, between law and ethics law is at best our attempt to codify ethics but one of the things we've known about law for as long as we've been making law is that we don't make perfect laws Uh, every law we make we need to come up with some way of Changing it. You look at the US Constitution, one of the biggest m- moments of genius in the framing of our Constitution was coming up with a process for amending it. Because mm-hmm. we knew right away we're going to screw this up. Yeah. So maybe one of the things that we need to see that I'm not seeing yet is uh, something like an algorithm of confession, of telling machines. That they should imitate us at our best, but that we know that we don't behave according to the better angels of our nature, because we we do see this far too often. Cornell West, uh, the uh, the religion and philosophy professor, uh, Harvard and Princeton, um, talks about this in his book *Race Matters*. Just in the in the preface to his book, he talks about how. He was living in New Jersey and driving up to. I think it was he was teaching at Williams College. He was driving up the interstate in New York. He's driving an expensive car. I think he was he was driving a Mercedes, and he gets pulled over while going the speed limit uh, for what he he referred to as driving while black. And to the when the police officer pulled him over, he said, "What's wrong, officer?" And he, and the officer s- let him know that he suspected him of drug trafficking. Here he is. He's driving a Mercedes. He's uh, wearing a three-piece suit, and he says to him, I'm, I'm from Princeton, New Jersey, and I'm, I'm a religion professor at a private liberal arts college. And the police officer's response was, yeah, and I'm Mother Teresa, mm. and apparently used some coarser language than that with mm. him. Police officer was working on the habits that he had built up over time, some of which you know, arguably are justified. You know, th- and I don't mean to say that he's right. Just that if every one of the last, say 10 people that you caught drug trafficking did look like a, a religious little bit
0: professor like, from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe
1: they were driving Mercedes, probably yeah. not, but more likely they were African-American. Hmm. Understandably. We, we like to make simple decisions. We don't want to have to go through a long checklist. We mm-hmm. want a quick heuristic. Mm-hmm. And that officer was using a very quick heuristic. He's black therefore more likely to be guilty of a drug-related crime. And when he was given all the evidence to the contrary, he refused to believe what he saw. Mm -hmm. So if we're training machines or allowing machines to train themselves to imitate us, they're going to imitate all of us. Uh, I mean, and I I don't, I mean, I I think about my own life, uh, just how I drove here today. Did I obey the speed limit all the way here today? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, in fact, there's probably a good chance that at some point in a 35 zone, I was going 36. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say for sure. Cause you know, I don't want to get a ticket for going one mile over the speed limit. Yeah. I heard your podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, we all make little decisions uh, that are practical uh, that make for an easy heuristic for us, an easy way to get through life where we're not necessarily behaving the way we'd have other people behave. So, how do you program a machine to behave well and not necessarily to behave the way we do if the way we're programming the machine is to behave the way that we do?
0: It's a a tough feedback loop to build in, but also I think in in my mind, what I'm thinking about is the the feedback loop for the idea of the confession, right? To say, this is what I'm seeing, but I feel like I'm, the machine saying this, right? I feel like I'm drifting farther off from where the initial patterns were can you human audit me and see if i'm correct or not yeah and that's where you know simplistically we talk about you know or have feedback loops or audit trails or you want to you want to be kind of having somebody that's overwatching the machine and even the idea that's been i've heard floated around machine watching machines watching machines right
1: a robot ombudsman
0: correct correct but the idea of the ombudsman being built in mm-hmm. to say look is this still a path along which way i want to be going and then i think it comes back to who's using them who's using the system for what purpose right because that's where you get the it's kind of like i was talking about earlier could be the same situation and two individuals could be having a completely different contextual experience where this is the best day of your life. And you're like, I don't like this situation all this is the worst day of my life. And so who's training the system to have that kind of feedback loop to be built back in. Right. That's a really powerful idea. I, and hopefully we're, we're going to be thinking about and talking about that more and more.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so a part of what we can do is if, if you've got an AI startup, mm. you're going to hire an engineer, right? You're going to hire somebody who can do the coding for you. Somebody who can do the hardware for you. Uh, it's going to be expensive, but I think that what we need to do is hire somebody else who can do the ethical thinking for you. Yeah. And this is actually, I don't want to just put this on the backs of the people who are trying to be entrepreneurs. I think that this is also going to be the responsibility of educational systems. And it's hard to do. I mean, we—we we, because we are wary about the separation of church and state, we're wary for the, a variety of reasons about teaching ethics in public schools. Um, There's always the fear that those ethics will somehow be the ethics of one religion or another, for Mm. instance. Uh, So we, I mean, think about how few schools teach philosophy. I find when my students get to a university, they can jump right into a biology class because they've all had some biology in high school. They've all had grammar in high school. I mean, almost every discipline they've had, but there are a couple disciplines that we tend to teach only in private schools, and philosophy and theology are among them. Theology, people are often put off by that. They're like, oh, I don't believe in a God. What they don't often realize is that theology is not trying to be Sunday school. Theology is trying to get us to reason about what Paul Tillich calls um, sort of an ultimate uh, uh, ultimate concern. What is, what is it that goes beyond our economic concerns and beyond our personal Security, what are those concerns? What are the things, if you could choose just one thing to preserve to pass on to posterity long after you're gone, what would that be? And you can see that, well beyond, say, a church or a mosque or a, a synagogue or a temple context, there are people who do this all the time, who make those decisions. Firefighters make those decisions mm-hmm. all the time, rush into a, a burning building a police officer who hears an active shooter and runs towards the the sound of the gunfire when the rest of us are running away. Those are people who are saying, I've got an ultimate concern that I'm acting on here. And that duty, that obligation to my community, to the oaths that I've taken, those things really matter. To some degree, I'm not saying it's identical with theology, but to some degree, that is parallel to the kinds of things that I'm talking about when I'm talking about theology. What is it that's of ultimate concern that really matters to us so much that we would have other people continue to talk about this well after we're gone. Mm-hmm. Other people continue to imitate this well after we're gone. What theology then adds to that is a community of hermeneutics. You've got, you know, I've been since we started talking, um, we've got this community spanning thousands of years that have been continuing to wrestle with this idea of ultimate concern. So, you know, if if somebody's theology is simply there is a God and therefore you should give me all of your money, that's not really theology. That's just turning the word God into a tool for manipulating other people. Mm. But if somebody's theology is I am gripped by the possibility that there's something bigger in this world than meets my eye and I need your company to help me to discern what that might be and what obligations then that entails for all of us. Well, that's theology. And if we do that now, if we say now I'm going to include not just all the people who are here around us right now, but I'm going to ask history before us: How did they wrestle with this? What can we learn from the past? And I'm going to look to the future and ask: What's really worth preserving mm-hmm. over a long haul? Again, this is theology.
0: Yeah. So, I, so I think that leads me right into the kind of the next question I, I'm I'm curious to ask you about is the idea of you know, hiring for an AI startup potentially, your your systems engineer, you know, your programming staff, but also the idea of the theologically slash philosophical role that business is going to look at it in the vein of this is the ethics we have to have to meet the minimum viability for our regulatory body potentially, mm-hmm. right? But also, I think the argument that you're making, which I would probably agree with it is... We have to do this right the first time. And even though it might be something that you can still build the system, launch it and have it run. But without having those checks and balances built in ahead of time while it's being constructed is extremely dangerous. And I think when I think about history of humanity, we haven't always done that with tools that we've constructed. I mean, We don't build a hammer with the safety switch on it our tools have not been this sophisticated to date to where all of a sudden you know, the example we were talking about earlier the cuckoo clock mm-hmm. you know the the level of maliciousness for a cuckoo clock is fairly low right even though it's not a made machine but the level of maliciousness potentially for you know the platforms that we're talking about the ai systems could be very very great and so it's the idea of uh, you know and this is what i'll ask you here in a second but the, in my mind now the short and medium term future kind of way to look out on that horizon is Will there be a role out there for an AI ethicist, and if, will that be a job posting that you will see um, for startups or for companies that are looking to not only build AI tools or build machine learning tools, but also to be employing them and using them? Is how do we make sure that all of those, you know, ethical constraints and boundaries, whatever industry you're in, are being met and there's a minimum, you know, kind of capacity that's being acknowledged there? Right. So the question to you is: Thanks, yeah. Dave, for letting me ramble for a second. Sure. The question for you is. When you look at kind of the short-term, medium-term, and long-term, right? So say short-term's, say, 18 months, 12, 12, 18 months. Medium-term's that three- to five-year horizon. And then let's look out to that 10-plus years out. What do you see happening in this field?
1: Well, I'll I'll point out that there are already some AI ethicists. Uh, They tend to be at universities. Okay. So I'll just name two of them right off the the top of my head, Uh, two guys from whom I learned quite a lot, Uh, actually three. Um, Evan Selinger. Uh, Evan Selinger, uh, he just put out a book, Reengineering Humanity. Um, Patrick Lynn, Lin, L I N. Patrick Lin uh, has put together two books, two volumes, edited volumes, um, on robot ethics. And uh, um, I actually don't know how to pronounce her name, but Irina Raikou is how I say her name, okay. uh, who um, she works on internet ethics. So the, um, these three, and, and each of them I should say has other collaborators. I just don't remember all the names off the top of my head. Um, these three are people from whom I'm constantly learning. Uh, and there are quite a few of these folks. I think uh, what we need though is more of this. Uh, at I think businesses that want to exercise corporate social responsibility should consider hiring AI ethicists, uh, robot ethicists and so on uh, to ask the The big question is not just how do I avoid litigation, but how do I do good things in the world? You know, when we talked a a moment ago about self-driving cars. So if I've got a self-driving car, obviously I want that car to be efficient. I want to, to get people from point A to point B in such a way that I'm going to make money for my company and I'm going to make the customer happy, Right. Now, sometimes that self-driving car is going to have to make some tough decisions. Most of the time, it's going to the tough decisions will be, do I take route A or route B? Uh, and it's hard to tell which one's going to be the more efficient based on traffic patterns. But it might just be that a squirrel is going to run in front of that car, and that car will have to decide, does it swerve or does it kill the squirrel? Now, it might not just be a squirrel, it might be somebody's pet dog. Mm. Um, how do you decide whether to hit that dog or not? Because if you swerve to avoid the dog, you might then cause somebody else who's driving or somebody who's walking along the street to make a different decision. So there's gonna be this kind of downstream Mm -hmm. set of consequences. And it gets even more complicated if I have to choose, I'm driving along and all of a sudden a dog runs out from one side, a child chases a ball out from the other side and there's a car coming right between and I'm gonna hit something. Do I hit the dog, the child or the car? If I hit the dog, I'm going to anger the dog owner, and they'll sue me. Right? They might sue me, but they're not not going to sue me for all that much. Mm-hmm. If I hit the child, I could kill or severely injure the child, and that's a serious problem. Uh, of course, there's going to be both civic and, uh, and, and, and quite possibly um, criminal proceedings after that. If I hit the car that's coming head-on... And I can justify that decision because the car, the driver of the other car was most likely to be insulated from the impact, but I'm also gonna cause the most harm to the person in the car that I, you know, that that I designed. Mm -hmm. Which of those is the best choice? Mm -hmm. And my fear is that companies are going to ask lawyers, and, um, and uh, you know, data scientists and, you know, they're going to ask people to do the math and ask which one is going to cost us the most in litigation. Correct. Uh, and that's not an ethical decision. That's a financial decision and to some degree a legal decision. But that's really taking more than anything. It's taking into consideration the concerns of the stockholders and not of all of the stakeholders in the community.
0: And specifically the stakeholders engineers that are in that situation at that moment. That's right.
1: Yeah. And there will be downstream consequences as well, because whatever we decide here has the capacity to become a standard for other engineers. And whatever's decided in that first trial will become precedent for other trials as well. Uh, we've seen the way that we've shaped our communities with roads. I mean, think about how much of our communities have become pavement in the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's good or bad, it's just different. But that has shaped everything. It's, it's changed the cost of infrastructure. It's made it possible for us to live further apart from one another, a little bit more alienated. There are fewer front porches now, mm-hmm. at least in, in communities like ours. Bigger garages, and the garages have moved out front. It's changed our architecture uh, it's changed the way that we live our lives and it's and to some degree alienated us from one another. And it's also created new opportunities for us to engage with, with one another. If we just wait for technology to solve our, our problems, or if we regard all of our problems as problems that can be solved by technology, we are uh, delegating ethical decisions to other people. and not only is that not really a very good democratic process it's not a good ethical process it's not very convivial it's not a good community process yeah yeah
0: the implications are far more vast and i think most people realize in decisions that we're making today right. and the downstream or the ripple effects outwards where it, it will have profound consequences mm-hmm. so so i think that that's something we can be thinking about today so just thinking about the technology, kind of as where it is today. Yeah. If you did look out five years, what are some things that you think may be happening? And then again, if we look out kind of that ten-year beyond horizon, you know, what's what's your future state look like?
1: Well, I'm not a very good futurist. I will say that uh, my job as a philosophy professor, I've got some job security here because we keep coming up with new technologies, which means we keep coming up with new problems, and so yeah. there's always going to be room to to teach ethics. Uh, I can imagine us going in a whole range of different directions. So let me just sort of in the short term, medium term, long term kind of cast what some of those extremes between which we'll have to navigate uh, could be. Uh, I think that for right now we tend to be pretty content with allowing our solutions to be designed by the people who are going to benefit financially. Uh, My hope is that in the short term, the large tech firms are going to recognize that they've reached a a point where they're not practicing the corporate social responsibility if they don't hire ethicists. Uh, My hope is that in the short term, very soon, we're going to see more and more universities, colleges, and even high schools teaching ethical decision-making. And that's going to be really hard because we don't have a long history of doing that and even that process of teaching ethics is going to be challenging for people uh there are people working on this there are people who are working on how do you teach philosophy to children without telling them the ends but telling them the means Mm -hmm. it's sort of like uh, like teaching algebra Mm -hmm. right i mean you can teach students algebra you don't just give them the solutions yeah Uh,
0: You You work through the problems. You work through the problems. And
1: remember that when you were taking a math class and you had a teacher said, show your work? Yes. And you're like, why do I want to show my work? (laughs) It's the showing the work that we really want to focus on. Correct. Not how did you get to that conclusion? I mean, not what was the conclusion, but how did you get there? Yeah. What was the data you drew in?
0: Yep. And the decisions you made along the way. Exactly. And how are you making those decisions? I think that's something where it's a very poignant kind of thought of right the way to build things for a better future
1: and i think by the way that so here i'm i'm going to just display one of my own liberal arts biases this involves teaching poetry Mm. Uh, and probably most people listening to this are just going to roll their eyes at that at that moment teaching poetry how does teaching poetry do that uh you if you teach a poem teach students how to read a poem one of the things you show them is that there's difficulty in interpretation There, there are people who love poems just because you know you get a little bit of uh, a little jingle to it, something that rhymes, easy to remember. Um, But some of the best poems are poems that, uh, like haikus, that challenge us, where you have to sit with them. It's just a couple of words, but you got to sit with it, and then you realize, I don't entirely know what's being talked about here. Mm -hmm. Now I got to work through it. I think all of us if we're gonna be responsible, not just companies, but all of us are gonna need to develop ethical practices. Practices that bring us together with other people to work through difficult decisions. I do see this happening, by the way, in some important places. So for instance, in hospitals. Uh, Not all hospitals do this and not all do it well, but plenty of hospitals do have medical ethicists because we've known for a long time that as we have new medical technology we present ourselves with new and difficult problems back before we could do surgery if somebody came in badly wounded you said well i'm very sorry you're going to be either severely disabled or you're going to die and best we can do is provide the you know the comforts of being in your presence and giving you food and water as we've gotten better and better at uh, at saving lives We've also made it possible for us to keep somebody technically alive while in a vegetative state. Yep. And we have the question, is that an ethical decision? And you, you, know, you, you know this from working in the field. Mm. There's all kinds of other decisions like that. And the best hospitals, I think, are the ones that are not just trying to come up with the technological solution, but that are gathering together lots of physicians, lots of other stakeholders, and asking... What's the right thing for us to do? How do we care for the whole person? So in the long term, yeah, I think what we need is people asking just that question. How do we care for the whole person? How do we care for the whole community? Mm-hmm. Not just what's a cool use for facial recognition yeah. technology? Because yeah. there's some great uses for that. Yep. Um, so one of the things that I, I know you—I've already said—I I, I do a little bit of work in artificial intelligence uh, and especially the ethics of artificial intelligence and religion. I also work in uh, the the area of fish. Mm-hmm. I study I study salmonids. Uh, so we have this. You and I have this in common with our, our connection <laughs> yeah. to Alaska. Um, there are some really interesting uses of. Something like facial recognition or the artificial intelligence that's that's analyzing images and trying to figure out what's there when it comes to fish. So we've got a growing population in the world and we need food. We also have some really vast oceans that are largely unregulated. So you can use machines to find where the fish are and to pull the fish out of the water. When you've got hungry people who need fish, fantastic. It's like I was talking about before, that's using technology to save lives. Mm -hmm. But... We also need to keep the whole community of time involved in there. Because if I catch all the fish right now to feed the people who are alive right now, what am I gonna feed them next year? Yeah, And I'm not just affecting the people there. If I catch all the salmon, I'm affecting all the orcas and all the seals and all the, the otters, the ospreys, the eagles, the bears. And again, thinking about Alaska, just about every plant that is growing within a mile or two of a river in Alaska, and that would be much of Alaska, that plant is growing in nutrients that were left behind by bears. Yep. So the bears eat the salmon, and then they poop in the woods, mm-hmm. and that becomes the fertilizer for new plants. So you've got deer, moose, moose. Uh, you know you all small you know you've got Mm. your ground squirrels the full ecosystem the full ecosystem that's depending on the fish and if I use my machine to catch all the fish in the ocean to feed everybody this year the downstream consequences the trophic cascade effect in in, in the ecosystem is going to be devastating so what I need is somebody who is working on that technology helping me to determine where are the fish how can I fish them responsibly and I need people thinking, what does it mean to fish responsibly? Mm-hmm. People, not just who are making better nets, better fish hooks, et cetera, but people who are asking, how am I related to everyone and everything else? Yeah. And what obligations do I have to others right now?
0: Yeah. I, I, I think about it was brought up, I think I was exposed to the idea probably in the last year or two, um, and it's, it, I was exposed to it in the idea from a Native American perspective um, when I was watching a documentary and they were talking about the idea of seven generations. That's right. You know, they want to leave the earth for not just their children, their children's children, but for seven generations later. And so, you know, that had me kind of thinking about how are we building systems today that will impact humanity seven generations from now? Which is an extremely long time scale, far outside any business application, far outside any sort of day-to-day application, but what what is it that we're doing? Yeah that you know, as human beings interacting with one another, interacting with technology, so that as we grow together, both humans and artificial intelligence, and we're influencing one another, I'm drawing kind of like a double helix of my fingers right now in yeah. the air, but as we're spiraling with this together, and I'm an optimist, right? So I'm seeing us to create a better place for humans and a better world, uh, how do we do that? How do we start to think about that now for the adoption of this new tool to create that innovation that's gonna be extremely impactful? So that's my yeah. best hope for the future. What would your best hope for the future be?
1: Well, it's, it's very much along those lines. And you bring up seven generations. This is a, a phrase that I'm using all the time as well. Let's think seven generations in the future. I sometimes talk about this as planting hardwood seeds. Mm. Right, so uh, I think I, I work in, uh, in the, the rainforest in Guatemala as well and uh, work with the Itza people uh, as a, my, my university partners with a, an ecological organization down there they're trying to preserve a little bit of rainforest. And there's a big influx of people who are moving in and burning down the rainforest because they're hungry. You can't just wall off the rainforest, and uh, protect the hardwoods, uh, and you can't just let the rainforest burn down because you lose a lot with that. What you need is to find some kind of balance between those. You gotta let people plant corn that they're gonna harvest three months from now because the people are hungry. Mm. And it's wrong to preserve the trees at the expense of the human lives. It's also wrong to preserve the human lives at the expense of all the human lives and other lives that would come afterwards if we preserve the forest. I think we need to be planting crops for right now. You talked about the short term. We also need to be planting crops that you and I will not see uh, bear fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, I might plant an apple seed now uh, that, I'm not gonna see that tree grow up and, and, and bear apples, but if my grandchildren can eat those apples or their grandchildren, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and bringing that idea back to the building ethical AI systems that are the apple trees of algorithms. Yeah. right. Where we're, we're, we're looking and discovering kind of how those systems work now as we build them, but to put that thought process in is extremely powerful. This has been incredible, Dave. I, I'm extremely grateful for your time. And where can we learn more about your work?
1: Well, you can uh, learn more about my work if you go to uh, Slowperk uh, at Blogspot, S-L-O-W-P-E-R-C. Okay. S- uh, I tried to, uh, that's my blog, but I've also tried to list all of my books and and, uh, and articles there. But those other folks that I pointed to, Irina Raikou, Patrick Lynn, Evan Sellinger, they're doing, I think, uh, even more important work in this. If I could leave you with a parting thought on yes. this. Yes. Um, I mentioned that i I teach in a department of religion philosophy and classics at a at a lutheran school i think that one of the things that we're going to need is people who are willing to be sort of a saint francis for our time Mm. people who are willing to work not for the financial gain but for the gain of the whole community so i'm just going to throw this out there i'm that's part of why i do what i do Uh, i could be making a lot more money working as an engineer Uh, and i love engineering i love building things i like making tools but uh I'm also perfectly willing to consult with people who just want somebody to talk to you about the ethical decisions, and plenty of my students are as well, and I, I'm hoping to see. You more generations of people willing to make that kind of decision so just like you're doing by offering a free podcast
0: (laughs) yeah no i think it's it's important for us to consider these and have that open lines of communication beyond the you know transactional sometimes so again thank you so much david this has been phenomenal i really appreciate it and thanks for coming on what's ai
1: thank you it's a pleasure
0: (laughs) i think there's a lot to take away from my discussion with professor o'hara The idea that we're having the same thoughts and concerns about technology as our ancestors were 2,000 years ago is fascinating. Also, the role that AI is going to play in decreasing the cognitive load that we're going to have so we'll be able to ask those bigger questions. Those are two ideas that are going to stick with me for a long time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to continue this conversation, you can connect with me at justinsmithphd.com.